The following lecture was delivered at the 14th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Washington, D.C., a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yitzchak Breitowitz now presents his lecture, Rebuilding the Temple from Within. Okay, everybody, uh, this topic is a little different than my other topics. Uh, generally, I've been lecturing on uh, halachic and uh, more technical areas. Uh, this is more in the realm of, of spirituality, and that is the concept of what does it mean to rebuild the temple. Just a few days ago, most of us, perhaps all of us, observed the annual day of mourning, the 9th of Av, which commemorates the destruction of the two temples, the temple, the first temple at the hands of the Babylonians uh, in 586 BCE is the common date that is given. And then the second temple in the year 70 uh, by the Romans. And every year we sit and we mourn and we sit on the floor, we recite lamentations. We refrain from eating and drinking for uh, more than 24 hours and we mourn and we cry over the Chorban Beis HaMikdash, the destruction of the temple. And we pray that God will give us the temple again. We say, that the temple should, re should be rebuilt speedily in our days. What does actually does that mean? You know, I come from Jerusalem and obviously I uh, walk by the Temple Mount virtually every day. And there are people that believe that the mitzvah of building the temple means we should tear down those mosques and just start building. But the mainstream of halachic consensus does not understand it that way. We rebuild the temple not by physically building it. That awaits the coming of the Mashiach. But we rebuild the temple by making a temple for God within our heart and within our soul. Let's go back to the very first commandment to, dis to construct a tabernacle in the desert. The Torah says, Vyasuli Mikdash, God says to Moses, make for me a sanctuary, Vishachanti Bitocham, so I will dwell in them, the people. The Torah does not say, make for me a sanctuary so I will dwell in it. The Torah says, make for me a sanctuary so I will dwell in the heart and the soul of each individual Jew. The Beit HaMikdash is a physical representation and symbol of the divine presence that resides within us. When we lose the Beit HaMikdash, that is because God is no longer residing within us. Because of our sins, we have banished him. We have evicted him. In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple, he was boasting that he managed to destroy the house of God. And God's response was, I moved out a long time ago. I don't live there anymore. And therefore, you could, you could uh, destroy the building. So consequently, when we talk about building the Beit HaMikdash, we are really talking about making our heart and our soul a dwelling place for the divine. And when we make ourselves worthy of being a dwelling place for God, the temple comes of its own accord. 
Uh, we don't have to even build it. Either Mashiach will build it or according to one opinion in Rashi, it'll come down from the heaven. Our, our job is not to physically build a temple. Our job is to make our hearts a temple for God. Um, although I normally would not use a, a, a Christian a song as a mashal. Some of you might know the very, very famous and beautiful Shaker song. Don't tell anybody I mentioned this. Uh, sanctuary, which is exactly the point that exactly resonates with the Jewish tradition. Make my heart a sanctuary for God. That's exactly it. And that's based on the teaching of our rabbis. Make for me a temple so I will dwell within them. Now, in many ways, since I'm at a Chabad retreat, it is appropriate to mention some of the Chabad teachings. In many ways, the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, in the Tanya, tells us that on a deep level, God is already inside of us. Our very neshamot, our godly soul, is the breath of God. But what happens is that soul gets imprisoned by egotism, by selfishness, by hedonism, by resentments, by all of the negative feelings that we generate in the course of our lives. So it's all there. In many, many ways, you don't have to bring God into yourself. He's there, but he's in galut. It's as if he's in exile, he's imprisoned. And if we could get rid of all of the negativities, easier said than done, if we work on seeing the world in a positive way, if we work on gratitude, if we work on love, if we work on letting go of all of those things that inhibit us, it's not like we have to acquire something new. It's simply removing all of the dirt and the garbage to reveal what is already in us. And that is why the word tshuva in Hebrew is such a wonderful evocative word. You know, people translate tshuva as repentance. But the real translation of tshuva is returning. Now returning implies you're going back to a place you already were. I'm returning home. So what am I returning to? I'm returning to God. Of course, I'm returning to the Jewish people. But in a deeper level, it's I'm returning to me. I am not changing. We use the vocabulary of change all the time. We say, Shuva means you change, you turn over a new leaf. And of course, operationally, that's true. Behaviorally, Shuva may require many changes. But in the deepest existential level, Shuva is not about changing who you are. Tshuva is about becoming what you already are, but perhaps you're not connected to. So tshuva is not just returning to God, it's returning to yourself. So I think that the Alter Rebbe gives us a very, very helpful idea here, that in rebuilding the temple of God in our hearts, we're not really rebuilding so much as we are uncovering, like an archeologist, who's digging through all the detritus and uncovers the beautiful treasure, so too we go through a process to uncover the greatness within. In fact, I once uh, suggested that that is why the, the, the physical ritual of circumcision, uh, when a Jewish boy is circumcised at the uh, age of eight days, uh, how do you make a covenant with God? 
by simply cutting and exposing what's already there, even in an, in an anatomical sense. Circumcision is cut, expose, because that is what education is about. When you raise your child, or you raise your spouse, or you raise yourself, you need to kind of uncover what it is that you really are, your authentic voice, your real personality, that which is your true essence, that which is your godly soul, because that is the true person that you are. In fact, Rav Moshe Cordovero, a very great mystic, a very great Makubal from the 16th century, says this is even a key to deal with difficult people. We sometimes confront people who are very difficult. People who are resentful, people who are angry, people who are aggressive or passive aggressive. And of course, we might be those difficult people in the eyes of other people, so <laughs> we may be the people they encounter. But whatever it is, how do you deal with hard to like people? So one of the ways of dealing with hard to like people, or Moshe Guevara suggests is, turn back the clock and imagine them at a time when they must have been cute, five years old, four years old, two years old, six months old. At one time, they were a baby, a pure, beautiful baby. And then something happened that made them the rotten people that they become. Rav Moshe Cordovero says, you know what that generates in your heart? Compassion. What happened to that beautiful child? Why did he become such a nasty person? Then you all know the saying, people who hurt, hurt meaning the people who hurt are people who have been hurt. That's not an excuse, we have free will. But it, it's a way of changing resentment into compassion. And as the Alter Rebbe writes again in the Tanya, compassion turns into love. So you can love even very difficult people. Maybe you can't stand being with them, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> I don't have to spend my time, so to speak, with people that are so difficult for me, if I, if I could avoid it. But I no longer have the anger. I no longer have the resentment. And that frees you tremendously. One has to understand, in the dynamics of learning to forgive and let go, it is not only a benefit for the person who committed the offense that he is forgiven. It's a tremendous benefit to you. Because you're letting those resentments live in your mind rent-free. And they are extracting a tremendous toll on your ability to move forward, your ability to live, your ability to grow. It is like walking around with a 100-pound uh, weight on your shoulders or a 1,000-pound weight on your shoulders. You just don't move. When you can let go, you can be liberated. And then the true godly soul emerges, a soul of love and a soul of radiance, a soul of compassion a soul of joy. And then you're building the tabernacle of God in your heart, and that prepares the way for the building of the Beit HaMikdash, which is nothing more than a symbol of that God that dwells within my heart and within my soul. So one has to understand, ultimately, even in Judaism itself, many of you are exploring on different levels greater paths towards the observance of Judaism, the incorporation of mitzvot, of Jewish ritual. But I will just tell you, 
that if you find that your observance is a source of anxiety, a source of tension, a source of nervousness, something's wrong, something is not right. Because ideally, the mitzvot should be like a, a nutrition for your soul, something that feeds you, something that elevates you, something that gives you a joy and a contentment. So if there is something that is working in the opposite way, then you need some adjustment. Either you don't have the right rabbi sometimes, that can happen. Rabbis are like shidduchs, are like marriages, right? <laughs> What's right for one is not always right for the other. Or you're not understanding the Torah correctly. Or you're not moving at the appropriate pace. Some people move too fast, some people move too slow. There's a certain rhythm that a person needs to understand. But when the rhythm is right, then you find that you, you feel healthier. You feel that your soul is expanding, your consciousness is growing better. Uh, you can look at people with love and acceptance. Again, that doesn't mean that people are not responsible for their misdeeds, they are, but you can look at it in a more objective way. You know, there's a, an issue we have to talk about, we have to fix, but it doesn't have to be with the histrionics. It doesn't have to be with anger and resentment. Now again, I, I hasten to add, and I always make this point, that although I am standing on a podium, uh, I am not talking from a podium, meaning to say that these are things that I struggle with every day. I'm not here to tell you that I've mastered all of these things and I'm showing you how to do it. Uh, but I'm simply essentially talking to myself in terms of the exercise that we all have to do to build a place for God in our heart and in our soul. Now, egotism is a great killer of spirituality because when we're focused so much on what I want, then there's no room for God to come in. It turns into arrogance, it turns into selfishness. And it's possible that a person might be keeping all the commandments, but if they do so with that spirit of egotism and selfishness, ultimately it's not gonna elevate them. It's not gonna take them where they need to be. Uh, there's a famous passage in the Zohar that the Alter Rebbe again brings in the Tanya, that love of God and fear of God, fear meaning reverence for God, it does not mean being scared, but reverence of God, are like the wings, wings, that take your commandments and bring them up to heaven. A bird can be a bird even without wings, but it doesn't soar, it doesn't fly, it doesn't move up there. In fact, they tell the story about the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov once walked into a synagogue and uh, the people of the synagogue thought he was complimenting them. He says, oh, this synagogue is so crowded. It is so filled with mitzvot. I can't even walk around. So people were very proud. Yes, yes, we are very religious. He says, no, he meant, <laughs> I mean, there's no fear of God, no love of God. All the mitzvot stay here. They don't fly up. So the room is crowded, <laughs> as it were. So as I say, this is one of the things I think that learning, again, a little commercial, that learning Hasidic, you know, I, I teach in a non-Hasidic yeshiva, in truth, right? So the truth of the matter is that in my standard curriculum, it's very Talmud and halacha oriented. But I can tell you that even in the non-Hasidic yeshiva, more and more students are gravitating towards learning Hasidus, whether it's Tanya, whether it's Svatemis, other Hasidic masters, and the like. Uh, some even do Likute Torah, which is a much more difficult work of the Alter Rebbe. And the reason is because people are thirsty to learn not only how you keep the commandments, which is very, very important, but how to feel and awaken 
the love of God and the fear of God and the reverence of God, which is already inside of us. But we need to find a way to access and to increase and to discover. So I can tell you that in many, many ways, uh, this is such a felt need, not only among those who are not yet observant, but even among people who are fully observant. Because there is such an emptiness in life unless you connect to that inner holiness of your soul, which is the godly soul that is within you. And that is making a sanctuary for God. In fact, there's a very beautiful niggun. If I had a better voice, I would sing it for you. But bilvavi mishkan evnech. In my heart, I will build a tabernacle for God. And in my heart, I will kindle the fire of the akedah, the fire of the sacrifice of Abraham to his son uh, Isaac. Right? So when we mourn on Tisha B'Av, we're not mourning the destruction of a building. Yeah, the Beit HaMikdash happened to be a very beautiful building, to be sure, but there are other beautiful buildings. I mean, the Taj Mahal, you know, et cetera. If we had an architectural contest, what was a prettier building? You know, who knows? I'm not going to uh, express an opinion one way or the other. But the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash was symbolic of the destruction, or at least the temporary abatement, of a relationship. A relationship that we need and a relationship that God needs because although it's difficult to fully understand this, God needs us just as we need him. And because God is infinite, God's need is infinite as well. And therefore, the old saying, you know, if your parents used to uh, discipline you or sometimes maybe even hit, so they would say, uh, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Right, well, so sometimes the kid says, back, let me hit you, Dad, I don't want you to hurt so much. Uh, you know, but whatever it is, in the, in the sense of God, it is true. The galut, the exile, the estrangement, the separation, brings more pain to God than it even brings to us. And therefore, the Balatanya writes over and over again that part of what should motivate us to make our heart and soul a sanctuary of God is the compassion that we feel for God himself who is suffering when we are suffering. So even that is non-egotistical. It's not that I'm suffering so I want to get close to God. It's God is suffering so I want to alleviate the divine suffering uh, by the process of, process of repentance. So again, these are uh, ideas that are largely in different places in the Tanya and uh, those of you that uh, have not yet had an opportunity uh, to learn it. Again, I'm giving a little Chabad commercial here. Uh, it's a very, very worthwhile book. I think it can change your, li your lives in many, many uh, ways. I, I know myself, I, in, in my non-Hasidic yeshiva, I've been giving classes in Tanya, and I find that it's had a, I can't say if it's changed other people, but at least for myself as a teacher, it, it certainly has had a major, major impact uh, on the way I view things in my own, my own life. So it's something that, uh, see, for Lubavitcher said it, you know, it doesn't have the same credence because that's the official, but, but, but uh, even from a non-Lubavitch perspective, I can tell you what a beautiful, moving, deep and profound experience uh, it is. So let me share with you the an interesting thought. So we have the ninth of Av, which is mourning. And there's an interesting idea that Rav Tzadok says, another Hasidic Rebbe, in which he points out that on Passover, we have four cups of wine because there are four expressions of redemption. 
So Passover is about experiencing redemption. Rav Sadok wants to say that just as there's a positive energy and a negative energy, the correlation to the four cups of wine are the three weeks that precede the ninth of Av, three weeks of mourning from the 17th of Tammuz, and the fourth cup is Tishabav, meaning to say the four cups of wine represent the four terms of redemption is progressive closeness to God. Getting closer, 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 closer. The three weeks culminating in Tishabav is progressive distance from God. Further, 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 till we reach the nadir of ninth of Av, which is estrangement. So in a sense, it's kind of a positive negative force. The four Lashonot of Geulah are expressions, the, the terms of redemption, are expressions of closeness. The three weeks on the ninth of Av are expressions of distance and estrangement. So although they seem to be opposite forces, opposite rhythms, they are actually ultimately the same because there is a closeness that you get precisely by a sense of estrangement. All of you know the phrase, I believe it's Shakespeare, absence makes the heart grow fonder. That is sometimes what awakens within our soul a yearning to be connected to God is a feeling of how far we are from the Almighty. And when we realize that our sins have created barriers and blockages, and our soul is starving for a connection with something greater with God, and we know that God is yearning even more than our own souls to be connected to us, paradoxically, the greater the estrangement, the more powerful is the closeness. You know, somebody once asked a great rabbi, who made Aliyah, what is that, did he, did he miss anything about living outside of Israel? So the rabbi answered, yes, I missed the yearning to make Aliyah. Because now that I'm here, I'm here. So I don't think about it so much. But when I was there, I was always yearning. And that yearning created a closeness that on some level might even be deeper than the closeness of the experience itself. So as a result, Rav Sadok says, the idea that there's a correlation between the four cups of wine of Passover and the four terms of redemption and the three weeks in the ninth of Av, although one is a movement of closeness culminating in Mount Sinai and the other is a movement of estrangement and distance, they ultimately converge because the distance itself creates a closeness and a yearning that is so palpable. That is why, maybe it's a, it's a little secret that people don't like to talk about, many people find Tisha B'Av, on some level, a profoundly enjoyable day. But an enjoyable day, not like, not like Purim, not the enjoyable day of singing and dancing, of course not, but a day in which I get to feel my love for God and my pain at being separated from God. And that itself is cathartic. That itself is liberating. That itself connects me because I know that God is crying for me just as I'm crying for God. And that creates a tremendous sense of closeness. So closeness can take many forms. There is the closeness that comes from intimacy and there is the closeness that comes from estrangement. And both of them 
are mechanisms that can lead you to redemption. One way of looking at it is, look at galut, look at exile as a circle instead of a line. Now in a circle, when you move further and further and further from any point on the circle, you're actually getting closer to that point on the other side. In a straight line, the further I move from a point is the further I move from a point. But in a circle, right, let's imagine a circle, a point on top of the circle, so I'm drawing along the arc of the circle, so I'm further, 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 but I'm closer the other side. And that's the trajectory of Gullus. Gullus is actually a mechanism that brings you closer to God on the other side through the yearning and through the desire that you have. And that is the meaning of the famous statement that Mashiach is born on the ninth of Av. I'm sure you've heard this statement. <clears throat> that does not mean that the physical birthday of Mashiach has to be on the ninth of Av. Mashiach could be born any day of the year. But what it means is the power of redemption that comes into the world is commensurate to the yearning that you have in the ninth above, which expresses yearning. The stronger the yearning, the more redemption you have brought into the world. I've seen a number of times on, on YouTube, you know, the Rebbe, of course, always talked about Mashiach. That, that, that's very, very obvious. But there were many, many times where I saw him, I, I didn't see him in person, but I saw him on the videos that are so available now, of breaking down and crying and shedding tears. And you, you had the sense that he was crying for God to come back into the world, to reveal himself, to uncover all of the blockages in our neshamot so we can be united. And those are the tears that bring Mashiach. That's the meaning Mashiach is born on the ninth, on the ninth of us. So these are some things to think about. You know, people sometimes say, oh, why do you need a ninth of Av today? Jerusalem is built up. Uh, the Jewish people have sovereignty over the land of Israel. Baruch Hashem, and thank, thank God, uh, there are millions of Jews in the land of Israel. And it has one of the best economies in the world. A strong army, yes, they're you know, still dangerous, but still Israel handles it very, very well. In fact, I, as, a, as a one who lives in Jerusalem, I always have a little bit of a smile when people say, oh, I can't move to Israel because it's too dangerous to live in Israel. Right, uh, a lot uh, safer than, uh, a lot more dangerous than Poway, California, or Paris, or London, or Pittsburgh. And you could fill in a number of places. Uh, you know, in Jerusalem, where I live, uh, and we're right next to East Jerusalem, which is Arab Jerusalem, uh, you see children who are no older than five or six walking the street at nine or 10 p.m. at night. I don't know why they're not asleep, whatever it is, but they're walking around and they're going shopping for their parents. I can tell you in Montgomery County, where I used to live in Silver Spring, if a 12-year-old is by himself, someone's gonna call the police, social services, and the parent may get hauled in for child abuse, letting your child you know, wander around, you know, and, and the like. So the notion that Israel is a dangerous place is grossly, grossly exaggerated. So people say, why keep Tisha B'Av? But the short answer is, Tisha B'Av is not only about political sovereignty, it's not even about living in Israel, as wonderful as a privilege as it is. 
It's about feeling the presence of God in your heart and on your soul. And until we've managed to build that temple of the heart, we are still in Galut, we are still in Chorban, Chorban is destruction. We still need the tears and the yearning of the ninth of the ninth of us. So these are some perspectives of Tishabav that we need to think about. Tishabav is a very, unfortunately, still a very, very relevant holiday for us to observe. And it is called a holiday because it does bring us closer to God. But we know that right after Tishabav, we had three weeks of grieving. And then we have seven weeks, more than double, of what is called nechama, comfort. The haftorot, starting this Shabbos, for the next seven weeks, are all going to be about the great themes of comfort and redemption. In fact, this Shabbat is called Shabbat Nachamu, the Shabbat of comfort, because it starts the haftorah, the prophetic portion, is from the prophet Isaiah, who is the great prophet of comfort. In fact, all of the seven haftorahs are from the same prophet. And it begins, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami. God is speaking to the prophets, go and comfort my people. Give them hope, give them courage. There's been so much destruction, so much death, so much korban. Give them comfort, give them strength. That is what a Jewish leader is supposed to do. A Jewish leader is given the mission of nechama, giving people strength and comfort in times of adversity. And it is interesting that the measure of comfort is more than double. Three weeks of tragedy and catastrophe, seven weeks of comfort. There's an interesting point about the Haftaris of comfort. You know, um, if you try to analyze the Haftaris, there seems to be a lot of repetition, meaning like, you know, you ask somebody, summarize for me the Haftarah of week one in one sentence. So basically the answer is gonna be, well, God says we should be comforted. Okay, I got it, that's the Haftarah. Then you ask the person, summarize the Haftarah of the second week in one sentence. You say, well, you know, God says be comforted. And what's the Haftarah of the third week? Uh, God says be comforted. And you're wondering, like, why do you have to hear the same message over and over and over again? What new information is each Haftarah giving you? So here is where it's actually not good to be too analytical. You know, some commentaries want to say, well, this Haftorah talked about this thing, and this one talked about this thing, and they try to make very fine distinctions. But I would suggest to you that maybe this is the wrong way to look at it. Because when a person's heart has been broken, and a person has been consumed with fear and loneliness and abandonment, they need to be comforted many, many times. You know, it is said that every child remembers the first time that they were separated from their parents without knowing it. I know I remember it. I mean, I mean no, just again, I was with my mother, Allah Shalom, uh, downtown Hartford, Connecticut, and we were in an apartment store and I had stepped back to look at some toys. And then all of a sudden I didn't know where my mother was. She just walked maybe a few feet ahead. I didn't know. And I had this sense of panic. I had this sense, oh, 
I'll never find her again. I don't know where she is. It only lasted a minute, but they say that this is an experience that ch uh, children often remember, that sense of being abandoned. And what happens? So a kid starts crying, and the mother has to embrace the child and say, it's okay, it's okay, I love you, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Now, if you want to be over overly analytical, Gemara cup, you could say, well, why do you have to say, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here three times, say it once, and I know you're here. In other words, you understand the idea. When someone's heart is broken, it's not enough to convey information. There needs to be a repeating and a repeating and a repeating. So I would suggest to you that the key to understanding the Haftorahs is not in an attempt to find some new verbal nuance in one Haftorah that you don't see in the other but to understand that God is hugging us and he's reassuring us. I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Why am I saying it a hundred times if I could have said it once? Because you need to hear it a hundred times. You need to be reassured. In other words, repetition is not redundancy. It is giving a personally emotional strength to be able to go on. And I think that's the key to what would otherwise be, you know, if you're just a cold analytical person, you're gonna see this as redundant and unnecessary. But if you imagine God speaking to a broken spirit, this is why God talks in that particular way. So, here is the question I want to pose. The pattern of the Haftarat, all the way through the end of the High Holidays, is the following pattern. Before the ninth of Av, we have three Haftarot dealing with catastrophe and tragedy. In Hebrew, that is called the Shalosh, or Aramaic, Shalosh de Paranuta, the three Haftaros of tragedy. Then we have the seven Haftaros of comfort. That takes us to Rosh Hashanah. And then we have Haftaros that deal with repentance and the themes of tshuva. So the pattern is tragedy, comfort, repentance. Now here's the problem. Let's look for a moment at the Amida. The Amida is the prayer that religious Jews recite three times a day. We ask God to help us repent and then we do tshuva, God forgives us, and then there is redemption, which is comfort. Meaning to say, you don't get comforted, you don't get redeemed until you do tshuva. So why do the Haftorah say, from tragedy comes redemption, which is comfort, and then there'll be tshuva? It's really a different pattern. From suffering, we are inspired to do tshuva. And from tshuva, we get redemption. Maimonides writes explicitly, Ein Yisrael nigalin, Ella, b'tshuva. The Jewish people are not going to be redeemed until there is repentance. Now, how that's going to work is indeed a problem, but, you know, Baruch Hashem, more and more Jews are coming back to Judaism. Uh, how will we get everybody? We're going to have to figure this out need more Chabad houses and more Shaluchim and everything else, but it's gonna happen. 
So the kasha is that the pattern of the Haftorot, which says that from tragedy comes comfort, and from comfort comes tshuva, is the opposite of what the Amida says, actually what the Torah says, that from adversity comes repentance, and from repentance comes tshuva. So instead of the pattern being tragedy, comfort, repentance, it should actually be tragedy, repentance, comfort, right? Why is tshuva put after nechama? So to answer this question in the time-honored way of always answering a question with another question, let's go back to something that you're going to see in the Parsha of the week. I'm not going to be here for Shabbat, so I'm going to take the liberty of giving you a mini-sermon on the Parsha of the week. Moshe Rabbeinu is speaking shortly before his death to the new generation that will be entering the land of Israel. The old generation has died out. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, I pleaded when I hit the rock and God decreed I could not go to the land. I pleaded to God to let me enter the land. But God was angry at me because of you. And God said, no. Now the simple meaning of the verse is that Moshe is blaming the Jewish people for his sin. You guys are at fault because you got me angry. And therefore, God, I hit the rock. And therefore, God said, can't go. Now, I mean, it resembles like the person who hits his wife and says, you know, I shouldn't have done it, but she got me so angry, I just had to punch her. One would not consider that acceptable. And for Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest of the prophets, whoever lived, to simply say, yeah, I sinned, but it's your fault. That's not what Moshe Rabbeinu would say. How do you understand that? God was angry at me because of you. So one of the great medieval commentators, Rabbeinu Nisim, the Ran, offers a very different explanation. And he says that what is the book of Deuteronomy about? The book of Deuteronomy, the whole book of Devarim, are Moshe Rabbeinu's farewell speeches shortly before his death. And as Moshe is going to leave his people and not enter with them into the promised land, he needs to give them what is called tokacha. He needs to give them chastisement. He needs to say, be careful not to worship idols. Don't do this sin. Don't do that sin. And your forefathers sinned and they were punished. Don't repeat it. He has to show them all of the flaws that they have, their arrogance, their selfishness, their lack of faith. And he needs to give them a hard line because this is the last chance. But here is what Rabbeinu Nisim says. When you have to point out the shortcomings of a person, you must also build them up by showing how great they are. An educational philosophy that is based on negativity is ultimately going to be a self-destructing proposition. Because one of two things will happen. Either I'm going to resent the message and simply shut down. Or the other way, I might internalize it to such a degree that I think I'm inadequate and I'm a failure. And I'm not capable of great things. So Rabbeinu Nisim says, Side by side with pointing out the areas in which a person needs to correct, whether it's your child or your student, 
You also need to show them their greatness, their potential, their beauty, their capacity to achieve wonderful things, to give them confidence, to give them strength, to give them courage. So imagine what this new generation feels. This is a generation that was born in the desert, or at least were very young when they left Mitzrayim, under the age of 20. The only life they ever knew was the life of the desert. Now, the life of the desert, in many ways, is an artificial life that's hermetically sealed. I'm sorry. They get their money. I'm sorry, I just need to record this. Okay, they get their man from the heaven. Uh, they get uh, their well that travels with them. Uh, they have uh, clouds of glory. Everything is perfect. And they're going to the land of Israel where they no longer will get the manna from heaven. They have to plant their crops. They no longer have clouds of glory. They have to fight their wars. They no longer have a traveling well. They have to dig wells or rely on rain. And worst of all, they will do so without the leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu. One can imagine how frightened they are, how disoriented they are, how bereft they feel, how inadequate they feel to the task. So Moshe Rabbeinu's job at this point is to build them up and show them their greatness. And the Ran says amazingly that that is the meaning of the verse. God was angry at me because of you. Not that you're to blame, but what happened here? Moshe Rabbeinu hit the rock and he called the Jewish people rebellious ones. Moshe Rabbeinu was not allowed to enter Eretz Israel because of God's love for the Jewish people. God says to Moses, if you insult my people, if you don't regard my people with the appropriate reverence and respect, even you will not be allowed to go to Eretz Israel. So Moshe Rabbeinu was telling, telling B'nai Yisrael, look at how beloved you are in God's eyes. I took you out of Mitzrayim. I did the 10 plagues. I gave you the Torah. And when I step on your honor, God says, one strike and you're out. And you have rebelled against God over and over and over again. And God says, you go in. Don't be afraid. You see that God loves you as a nation even more than he loves me. And therefore, you see what the Ron is saying. When the Pusik says, God was angry at me because of you, it does not mean because you got me angry, therefore I sinned. But rather, God was angry at me because of your honor that I infringed. See how beloved you are in the eyes of God. So now, let me just explain this. Let's go back to the Haftorah question. It is true that redemption will not come until there's tshuva. So in terms of what will unfold, tragedy gives rise to repentance, and repentance gives rise to tshuva. That is the sequence. But the sequence chronologically is not the sequence psychologically. 
Because where do I get the energy to do tshuva? When I'm confronted with tragedy, I feel God has abandoned me, God doesn't care, I'm not worthy. It is only the internalization that I am a redeemable person, that God loves me, that God wants a relationship with me. That will be the impetus to my tshuva. So the difference is this, the Amida is reflecting the steps as they actually will occur in historical reality. From tragedy, we turn to God in tshuva, and from tshuva, we are redeemed. But the Haftoros express the psychological steps we have to go through. And from tragedy, we have to internalize our redemptibility. And then, only then, are we ready for tshuva. A person does not do tshuva out of a sense of their worthlessness. A person does tshuva out of a sense of their goodness. You do tshuva because you know you're good, you know you're worthy. You don't do tshuva because you're a failure. If I think I'm a failure, I'm not energized to positively change. So psychologically, the idea of comfort must precede the possibility of tshuva, although chronologically, it is the tshuva that actually brings the nechama, the comfort, into its fruition. Actually, that's a bit of a, of a thought in which paradoxically, in order to, to rectify all of my flaws, I have to be convinced of my inherent goodness. You know, the Rebbe, you know, there's a common phrase in Jewish outreach that we talk about kiruv rechokim. Kiruv rechokim literally means drawing near those who are distant from God. It's a very common phrase, kiruv rechokim, lekarev et rechok. Everybody uses it, but the Rebbe didn't like that expression. And you know, it's interesting, he always had an interesting perspective on things. He said, what do you mean, Kirov Rechokim? Kirov Rechokim implies that this Jew is far from God. This Jew is not far from God. This Jew is already close to God. He, may, he or she may not know it yet, so they need to have the knowledge, but you're not taking someone who is far and bringing him close. You're simply informing him or her they already are close. And that is the source of tshuva. Tshuva comes from the awareness of our goodness, of our greatness, of our potential, of our divinity. And when I'm aware of that, when I'm aware that I am a redeemable person, I am a person that can merit God's nechama, that will give me the psychic energy to undertake the difficult work of making positive changes in my life. Now this is relevant, of course, not just for tshuva, this is actually very relevant for parenting, for raising our children. If you're a teacher, how you build up students, whether it's a secular teacher, Jewish teacher, you know, just the whole nature of teaching. And this is also how husband and wife should deal with each other, in which on one hand, there needs to be a frank discussion of things that should be corrected but it should be in the background and the framework of building each other up, affirming each other, 
giving each other strength. So as we enter the seven haftarot of comfort with all of its repetitions, God is telling us over and over and over again, you're redeemable, you're lovable, you're good, you're holy. And now do tshuva, do the work you need to do to bring out that wondrous potential that is the divine potential of the godly soul. Thank you so much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.